Hello everyone and welcome to the January 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Farmers Senior Vice President of Claims has been awarded $24 million for employer retaliation after a 24-day jury trial. Fire, uh, farmers hired the plaintiff, Andrew Rudinicki, in 1979, and he worked his way up as a trial lawyer with them to supervising attorneys, co-managing the Los Angeles office, and then the divisional supervisor until 2013 when he was promoted to senior vice president of claims and led uh, that senior vice president of claims litigation and led farmers branch legal offices where he was responsible for outside counsel that represented farmers insureds, legal bill review, and legal vendors. In 2013, uh, co-employee Lisa Seppi Winsfield reported to Rudinicki, who tasked her, tasked her with participating on a conference call with multiple in-house farmers' attorneys to address some of their gender-based concerns regarding women who thought they were victims of illegal pay disparity. And Rudinicki himself then had multiple phone conversations with these three attorneys regarding their gender issues. After these conversations, he passed on this information and suggestion to Farmers Human Resources, but HR, he said, did not respond or follow up. Then, a few years later, in 2015, one of them filed a class action against Farmers, alleging that Farmers systematically pays female attorneys less than similarly situated male attorneys, who were also routinely given higher-profile work assignments, are given raises and promotions more frequently, and are recognized for their accomplishments, while female attorneys were not. Farmers retained the Paul Hastings Law Firm, which is a major employment defense firm, to represent it in the class action. And the firm prepared Mr. Rudinke for his deposition, which was scheduled to be taken in the case. After he was prepared for the deposition, Rudnicki went to Farmer's Chief Claims Officer Keith Daly's office to explain that he had been prepared by Paul Hastings and would be testifying about what he believed were some HR failures, specifically the fact that the gender disparity issue had been raised and that HR denied his request for gender demographics and pay disparity documents in 2013. Mr. Daly became red-faced and agitated and said something like, I don't see that you need to testify about that. But Rudinke replied that he did not get to dictate which questions were asked of him in the deposition, and from then on, Mr. Daly treated Rudnicki with an icy chill. For example, in February and March 2016, Daly did not ask Rudinke to speak at Farmer's Big Conference, even though he had spoken there every year for the preceding 10 years. The class action then settled in 2016, before Rudinke was ever deposed, and the following month, Farmer's terminated Rudinke's employment 
and he was told that the reason was HR issues and that he was responsible for the class action settlement and that his behavior had become a risk to the organization. After his termination, uh, Mr. Rudnicki sued farmers alleging nine causes of action against farmers and five claims survived farmers' motion for summary judgment. Then, after a 24-day trial, a jury found in favor of Rudnicki on his claim for retaliation, awarding him $5.4 million in compensatory damages and $150 million in punitive damages. And the trial court reduced the punitive damage award to $18.9 million and left the rest of the verdict standing. At that point, farmers appealed the judgment, but the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Rudnicki versus Farmers Insurance Exchange. In the appeal, farmers argued that the Court of Appeal should reverse the judgment on liability because Rudnicki could not prevail on a claim for retaliation, and the trial court issued certain erroneous evidentiary rulings. And alternatively, farmers said if it did not receive a reversal on the liability, farmers asked it to eliminate or substantially reduce the damage award. But the Court of Appeal was not persuaded by any of farmers' arguments and found that farmers engaged in misconduct that can be characterized as moderately reprehensible which caused physical harm in a foreseeable manner. A new Superior Court ruling just obtained by the California Insurance Commissioner hopefully allows homeowners to avoid illegally uninsured workers' compensation problems. Persons employed by the owner or occupant of a residential dwelling are generally not considered employees for purposes of workers' compensation, if the employee's work is less than 52 hours or if they earned less than $100 in wages within 90 calendar days before the date of injury. And those who exceed those benchmarks become employees of the owner or occupant. To help homeowners obtain workers' compensation insurance for non-exempt home employees, In 1977, the legislature passed Insurance Code Section 11590, which mandated provisions for workers' compensation coverage be added to all homeowner insurance policies in the state. But not all homeowners were able to purchase homeowner policies, especially if they lived in areas where they are near the risk of forest fires or other catastrophes such as flooding. So, in 1968, the California legislature enacted the Basic Property Insurance Inspection and Placement Plan. This is called the FAIR Plan, and it provided for coverage of the property only, and did not provide for general liability of workers' compensation coverage for the homeowner. And since then, the difficulty for homeowners to obtain homeowner insurance with workers' compensation coverage has substantially increased. As a result of these market conditions and market pressures, in 2019, the insurance commissioner issued an order which required the FAIR plan to sell a homeowner's insurance policy using standardized terms in the HO3 policy 
the name of the standardized insurance form issued by the Insurance Services Office. But quickly, the Fair Plan filed a petition for writ of mandate in the Superior Court challenging the Insurance Commissioner's order, and the court agreed and granted in part and denied in part the writ, directing the Commissioner to set aside those parts of the order that required the Fair Plan to offer a comprehensive HO3 policy. In response, the Commissioner issued another order which required the Fair Plan to offer a homeowner's policy that just insures against a limited number of property perils instead of an all-risk policy, in addition to fire, plus premises uh, liability and incidental workers' compensation. And the Fair Plan Association quickly filed another petition seeking to nullify this newest insurance commissioner order. But... On November 27, 2023, the Superior Court of the County of Los Angeles denied the Fair Plan's petition in whole. So, as of now, the Insurance Commissioner's order remains in effect. And this year, Allstate, Farmers, and USAA have either completely stopped writing new policies or significantly limited their activity in California. And for smaller insurers, Maristar, Unitrin Auto and Home, and Unitrin Direct Property and Casualty have announced they will not renew existing policies in California starting in 2024. Homeowners who are unable to obtain homeowners insurance will at least be offered a policy with workers' compensation and general liability insurance now under the FAIR plan as modified by the insurance commissioner, although the coverage is not the equivalent of an HO3 policy. And now our regulatory news. California is poised to protect people who work in poorly ventilated warehouses, steamy restaurant kitchens, and other indoor job sites where temperatures can soar to dangerous levels. California currently has had heat standards on the books for outdoor workers since 2005, and indoor workplaces are next on their agenda. If California adopts its indoor proposal this spring, businesses will be required to cool work sites to below 87 degrees when employees are present and below 82 degrees in places where workers wear protective clothing or are exposed to radiant heat such as furnaces. If businesses are unable to lower the temperatures, they must provide workers with water breaks, areas where they can cool down, cooling vests, and other means to keep employees from overheating. Only two other states, Minnesota and Oregon, have adopted heat rules for indoor workers. And nationally, legislation has stalled in Congress, even though the Biden administration has initiated the long process of establishing national heat standards for outdoor and indoor work. The rules are likely to take years to finalize as neither workers nor businesses are satisfied with the plan. Some businesses fear they won't be able to meet the requirements even with the flexibility the regulations offer. And workers argue that buildings should be kept 
even cooler than the proposed federal regulations. And now in medical news, in, the la uh, in his latest newsletter, Bill Zachary reported on kinesiophobia. That's kinesiophobia. One of the many barriers, he says, that injured workers face to recover from work-related injuries. Kinesiophobia is the fear of movement and physical activity due to the anticipation of pain and particularly the fear of re-injury. Kinesiophobia is not only a significant barrier to optimum recovery, but it is also one of the major obstacles preventing injured workers from returning to their jobs. Mr. Zachary says it is a crucial to identify when kinesio, uh, kinesiophobia is impacting recovery and return to work, and to then take necessary steps to overcome these barriers. Discomfort from pain plays a crucial role in learning and recovery. However, in the context of physical therapy and re rehabilitation, a certain degree of discomfort may be necessary to stretch and strengthen tissue and regain an optimum range of motion. Acknowledging this distinction between harmful pain and therapeutic discomfort is vital in addressing kinesiophobia and achieving successful recovery and return to work. Pain is a subjective experience, and the personal perception of pain can significantly impact treatment and recovery. So it is essential to tailor rehabilitation approaches to consider each worker's pain threshold when developing treatment programs. Physicians and therapists who are not aware of these issues may find that surgery, other treatments, and physical therapy fail when not acknowledging and understanding kinesiophobia. Sometimes the anticipation of pain can be more daunting for injured workers than the actual pain they will experience. Kinesiophobia is best treated by first recognizing its existence. One of the most common tools for diagnosing and evaluating the level of kinesiophobia is the Tampa Scale of Kinesiophobia, that's TSK, consisting of 17 self-reporting questions that assess levels of fear, pain, catastrophizing, and disability, and this test can be found readily on the internet. And kinesiophobia can be treated through a multidisciplinary approach involving a rehabilitation physician, a psychologist, and a physical therapist. In concluding his article, Mr. Zachary said, it is essential for claims professionals to engage in identifying potential cases and intervene to overcome these barriers. And the WCIRB has released its quarterly experience report, an update on California statewide insurer experience as of last September. Written premium through the third quarter of 2023 was $12.1 billion, 2% higher than the same period in 2022. But the average charge rate continues to decrease and is now 5% lower than 2022 in the lowest in decades. 
After five consecutive increases, their projected loss ratio, including the cost of COVID claims, dropped two points, and also after increasing over the prior five years. The projected climb ratio, including COVID-19 claims, is six points lower than in 2021. And average claim closing cost rates have steadily increased in 2022 and 2023, but remain below the pre-pandemic level. Projected severity on indemnity claims for 2022 is 4% higher than 2021 and 16% against above 2017, the highest it's been in more than a decade since before the SB 863 reforms. Recent growth and indemnity claim severities have been in part driven by above-average wage inflation during the pandemic. The projected medical severity for 2022 is 2% higher than 2021 and 14% higher than 2017, which may be attributable to claims staying open longer since the start of the pandemic and increases to the medical fee schedule. The full report is available in the research section of the WCIRB website. And the DWC is now accepting applications for the April 2024 QME examination, which will be held between April 6th to April 12th, 2024. DWC will offer in-person computer-based testing using Pearson VUE. The application and registration packet for the QME exam can be downloaded from the DWC website, and applicants may also contact the medical unit of the DWC to request an application by way of U.S. mail, email, or fax. But the deadline for filing the exam application is February 21st. UCLA has acquired the former West Side Pavilion Shopping Mall, which it will transform into the UCLA Research Park, hoping to bring together scholars and industry experts from around the world. The 700,000-square-foot property is located two miles south of the Westwood campus and will initially host two multidisciplinary research centers, the California Institute for Immunology, and the Immunotherapy at UCLA, and the UCLA Center for Quantum Science and Engineering. Google, which previously leased part of this property, helped enable and supported UCLA's acquisition as well as favorable real estate market conditions. This later major acquisition is UCLA's third in the past 15 months and is part of a transformative expansion designed to broadly extend UCLA's top flight resources and institutional expertise. Last June, UCLA bridged the gap between Westwood and downtown Los Angeles with its purchase of UCLA Downtown, a 334000 square-foot building in downtown's historic core. And in September 2022, the university acquired its UCLA South Bay campus, 
including the 24.5 acres of former Marymount California University campus in Rancho Palos Verdes and an 11-acre residential site in San Pedro. And another storm is brewing in the world of medicine, with drug makers poised to unleash a price hike on over 500 drugs this January, a decision that's sending ripples throughout the entire system, leaving patients, governments, and even the drug companies themselves caught in the tide. Pfizer, Sanofi, and Tequila plan to increase prices on over 500 unique drugs in early January, including more than 1,140 distinct brands of drugs. While overall price increases have slightly decreased compared to previous years, newly launched drugs continue to see significant price hikes and are reaching record levels despite the Biden administration's effort to control drug pricing. On the surface, it's a classic case of supply and demand, as drug makers point to rising costs from inflation to research and development, as a reason for cranking up their price tags, as they argue it's the only way to keep the wheels of innovation going. But not everyone is buying that, as critics see a system they say is rigged against affordability, and patients are caught in the crossfire forced to choose between their health and their wallets. And the critics say this is not just a domestic squabble, it's a global game of chess. Governments are tired of footing the ever-growing health care bill and are flexing their muscles. The U.S., for example, recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a game-changer that gives Medicare the power to negotiate prices for some drugs. But it's a tiny pebble in the pond for now, but its ripples could create waves across the industry. So where does this story go? Will the drug makers hold firm, clinging to their pricing power? Will governments find the right formula to tame the price monster? And how much of this will be reflected in the cost of administrating workers' compensation claims? Only time will tell. But one thing's for sure, this is a story with no happy ending in sight, at least not yet. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.